Thanks, Vicky. Morning, everyone. Let's uh, keep this to a tight five minutes, then get something to eat, yeah? Sound good? All right. Uh, we might take a couple minutes more than five. Okay, I'm sorry if I go over five minutes. Um, how about I pray and we'll jump straight into Mark chapter six. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed to us who you are and what's in your heart. You have shown us how to live. I pray that now, as we dig into these verses, as I proclaim your words, that your word would be impressed deeply on each of our hearts so that hearing about who you are and hearing about how we should live, we will be so excited to live for you and our love for you will be grown all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I first left high school, I, my parents said, Tim, go get a job. So I went out and tried to get a job. What I did is I printed off a big stack of resumes and went down to the local shopping centre and just started handing out resumes to every single store. Like whether a store I wanted to work in or not, I just handed them out, hand them out, hand them out. I met a bunch of people in the store working there, tried to be like, you know, as nice and polite and professional as I could be. Handed all these out, got home and would then apply to the same stores online. I figure, you know, double my chances. And I did this uh, for a few days in a row and those days turned into some weeks. Those weeks dragged out into months. And I kept getting these email responses or phone calls saying, look, we're sorry, we just don't think you're a suitable fit for us. Or we're sorry, uh, your application's not going to go any further. Out of probably 100 or so applications I'd done within about a month, I got one interview but not even Woolies would accept me. So uh, I don't know what that was saying about myself as an 18-year-old. But after all that, I just kind of got fed up with it, sick of the constant rejection. And so I knew that it was the right thing to do to keep applying, but I just couldn't make myself do it. I started out so optimistic, thinking this will be easy, I've got a plan, like it's a numbers game, the more resumes out there, the more applications to do, the more likely I am. But I ended with this cynical complacency. What's the point? I'm just going to get rejected again. Why even bother? And so I pretty much stopped doing it altogether. Have you ever felt rejection like that? Maybe for you it was also a job. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a community that didn't want you to be a part of it. Maybe it was something else entirely. How did you feel when you felt that rejection? When going in, were you optimistic about your chances? Did you take that journey from optimism all the way down to cynical complacency? You see, Mark 6 is all about the preaching of God's kingdom. And I reckon that Christians often move along the path of optimism to complacency when it comes to evangelism, to proclaiming God's kingdom. We all start out, you know, young Christians, excited, full of energy, ready to tell all our friends, hey, you should come to church, hey, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus, hey, what do you think the world needs most? And we're full of energy and full of enthusiasm, but over time, after rejection, after rejection, we're just less keen. We don't want to talk to someone about Jesus because we just assume they're going to say, no, I don't want to talk about that. 
or that's a bit weird, you're a bit strange, or the relationship will change and they won't be as friendly or warm to you as they were before. And eventually, we stop altogether because it feels like it doesn't work. Now, I, I feel like I know I've been on that journey myself. Started out excited, ended up thinking, what's the point? My friends don't listen, they don't want to come to church, they now don't talk to me as much and don't invite me to as many things. What's the point? It doesn't work. We might not use those words, you know, naively optimistic, cynically complacent, but I think many of us have taken that journey ourselves as well. The problem is both attitudes are really, really dangerous. The naively optimistic, they're crushed by rejection. The cynically complacent live in disobedience to Jesus' commands. And so, as we look at Mark chapter 6, I want to show you the antidote to both those things. Mark 6 teaches us that people will reject us, but Jesus accepts us. So that's where we're going today. That's two points today. I told you it would be tight and quick. Two points, people will reject us, but Jesus accepts us. Now, Mark 6 is pretty clear about the cases of rejection. There's three in there. Ooh, did I just get louder? The spirit is moving through me. <laughs> the, uh, there's three cases of rejection in there. And as we look at these cases, we'll see that it's the message of repentance that causes our rejection, right? So firstly, let's look at Jesus in Nazareth. Jesus is the first person we see rejected in this chapter. He's in his hometown, Nazareth, where he grew up, where his brothers and sisters live, where his childhood friends live, where the people he built stuff for as a carpenter live. Now come with me to about halfway through verse 2 and look at their reaction to him. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. At verse 6, Jesus, he, was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus is rejected by the people he grew up with, by the town that he lived in and grew up in. His childhood friends, neighbours... They reject him and they have no faith in him. That's the first rejection. The second rejection is the rejection of the disciples. Now, this isn't explicit here, so let me show you. Jesus, he he sends the 12 out to preach and do signs, uh, healings and drive out demons. And as he sends them out, he prepares them for rejection. Look at verse 11. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is saying, some places will accept you and stay there, but for those that don't, because there will be places that don't, leave immediately and shake the dust off your feet. It's a sign of judgment against that place. So the disciples are prepared to be rejected. Because, like Jesus is rejected, Jesus' followers will too be rejected. 
The final case of rejection is the most severe rejection. It's John the Baptist. So in that little story there, uh, he's imprisoned by King Herod. And when Herod makes a deal with his stepdaughter to give her anything she wants, she asks for the execution of John. And so John's rejection means his death, which is a fate that Jesus will share by the end of this gospel. Now, this pattern of rejection isn't just in Mark chapter 6. It's all throughout the book of Mark, but it's focused here. It's intensified here. And it's there to prepare us for the rejection we will face as Jesus' followers. As as followers of Jesus, our job is to spread the news of the kingdom, like the disciples, there to go out and spread the news of the kingdom. And as we do that, we need to be prepared for rejection because we follow a king who is rejected. As Christians, we must expect and be prepared for rejection. We can't be naively optimistic because it will destroy our faith. It will ruin us. But why is this rejection so universal? Why why should we expect it everywhere we go? And when I say universal, I don't mean 100% of people will reject us. I mean everywhere we go, there will be people who reject us. Well, it's because of the message that Jesus proclaims. And it's the message that he gives his disciples to proclaim. And it's the message John the Baptist proclaimed. It's a message that cuts deep to the human heart. A message that exposes our sin It's because the message of Jesus is a message that demands repentance. To turn from our sin. To recognise the way we lived was wrong and evil and wicked and in rebellion against God. And to turn away from that. In all three cases of rejection we saw, repentance is at the heart of the message proclaimed. Uh, In Jesus' case... At the very start of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we are told the message that Jesus preaches throughout the rest of the Gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That's the message that Jesus preaches all through Mark. That's the message Jesus preached in Nazareth where he was rejected. In chapter 6, verse 12, the disciples are rejected because they went out and preached that people should repent. They went out and told people, the way you're living is in rebellion to your God. You must repent and turn back. John is arrested because he called Herod and Herodias to repent. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And implicitly behind that is, so fix it. Fix the situation, Herod. Repent, turn from your sin. And it's knowing that the message of repentance is what is rejected, that cures us of our naive optimism in evangelism. Because the message of repentance will be rejected. People will reject that message. There is no escaping that fact. And when we realise this, we won't be crushed by rejection. When we realise that the message of repentance is so painful for humanity here that many will reject it, we won't be crushed by rejection because it's not us that's being rejected. 
It's the message of our Lord Jesus. And if you think about it, this makes perfect sense, right? We don't like being told that the way we live is wrong or evil or wicked. We don't like to be told that we are not good in the eyes of God. We don't like to be told that we're not good enough. It's the same for people in Jesus' time, same for people today, same for people all through history. We don't like being told that we're not good. I used to watch this show called Scrubs. don't know if you've ever watched Scrubs. Scrubs is a sitcom uh, about a hospital. It's about the doctors and the nurses and the staff of the hospital and all the funny things they get up to. Everything I actually know about medicine, I've learned from this TV show. So if you're looking for medical advice, I'm your guy. Uh, you know, I learned that uh, surgeons are constantly at war with medical doctors. Like, you know, they're trying to always one-up each other. Who's the better surgeon? Who's, you know, you, know, you should give medicine. No, I'm going to want to cut them up and things like that. I learned that all surgeons, they're dude bros. And, you know, everyone else are nerds. I learned that janitors, they're the real power brokers of the hospital. They're the ones really in control of all things. So you shouldn't cross janitors in a hospital. So, like I said, come to me for any more wisdom about medicine, health, hospitals. I'm your guy. But as funny as Scrubs was, and it was very funny, I really enjoyed watching it, they also took moments to really kind of reflect and invest your time in dealing in, in the pain of dealing with the sick and dying. It was a show that didn't shy away from it. I remember a particular episode where there's a young doctor. He's new on the scene and he's doing a great job. Everyone loves him. They think he's going to be an amazing doctor one day. He's saving lives. He's really kind and compassionate. He's great with kids and all that. But eventually he leaves because he can't take the pressure and the stress of trying to save everyone. He just can't do it. And so he leaves. Now, I reckon being Christian is actually a bit like being a doctor in a hospital. Except it's a doctor whose only job is to break bad news to people. To go up to people and say, the diagnosis has come back, you have cancer, it's terminal, it will kill you. And then to go to the next patient, you're dying. And the next patient, inoperable. That's a bit like what Christians are. And it's hard. It's painful. It's draining. People will get upset and angry with you. People won't believe you. They'll be shocked and offended at your message. And our job is to do it over and over and over and over again. To all the nations. But... It is also our job to say, see that doctor over there? He has your cure. And it's come at great personal sacrifice to himself, but he has it and it's 100% effective. Now, they have to listen to the first part. They have to listen to the diagnosis to get the cure. And it's the rejection of the diagnosis that we see here. But there will be some who accept the diagnosis and find the cure. It is our great joy and privilege to point people to the cure. And so while, yes, we should expect rejection, Mark chapter 6 prepares us for the rejection we face as we proclaim the message of repentance, but it also shows us that many will accept. Look at verse 30. 
After John the Baptist is killed and that kind of little flashback is over, the apostles return from their mission. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. What you see there is not men who are beaten and dejected by constant rejection. You see men who, there's excitement about what they did. They they were able to teach and they were able to heal and drive out demons because of faith. These aren't men who are just defeated by rejection. These are men excited by acceptance of the message of repentance. And so, we can be optimistic without being naive. We can be optimistic. Yes, people will reject the message of repentance. But people will also accept it. They'll find the cure, they'll turn to Jesus and they will be saved. And so, we don't need to be cynical either. Some will be saved. We can keep going for the sake of those who will be saved. But in all that, we still must be prepared for rejection, right? We can't just assume everyone will accept and be defeated when they don't. We have to be prepared for rejection so that we aren't naively optimistic and we don't slip into that cynical complacency. I think we become cynically complacent because of mismatched expectations. We think the message isn't working, but it is working. We know that people will reject. We know that people will reject that message. It is working as intended. It's not us they're rejecting, it's the message. And so, being realistic means, yeah, we know some will reject us and we know that will hurt, that won't be nice, but it won't put us off. We will keep going despite the pain and the hurt of that rejection. In the coming weeks, uh, as we move more and more into Mark's Gospel, we will see what it means to follow Jesus as a saviour who will die and suffer. And it involves, spoiler alert, suffering and rejection. We'll see more and more what it means to be a disciple. But in all that, we'll also see the great joy of following Jesus, of the hope and the salvation that we have of the the wonderful uh, rejoicing and celebrating as people do turn to faith. Yes, we follow a suffering servant king, but we follow a king who saves. And so as we fix our eyes on that king, we will be able to endure. We'll be able to continue despite rejection and not give up. But, But the question is, you know, The reality is it hurts. It hurts, right? Being rejected constantly, it hurts. So, fix your eyes on Jesus as the motivation to keep going, but how do I keep going in the pain? How can I keep going when when I know people are saying no, Tim? I don't want to hear it. In fact, I don't want to know you anymore. How do we keep going? Mark 6 answers that question as well. It says, even though people will reject you, Jesus will accept you. Jesus has accepted you. Jesus has made you his and he loves you and he wants you. And when we are so filled with the joy and delight of knowing the acceptance and love and warmth and provision of Jesus, rejection doesn't hurt as much. 
Because sure, that person rejected me, but Jesus, my God and Saviour, loves me. Now, this becomes really clear when we compare the two leaders that we meet in Mark chapter 6. We have Jesus on the one hand, Herod on the other. Both men are extremely powerful. Last week, we saw Jesus' divine power through his miracles. Herod is the king of Galilee, the king over the region that Jesus has been preaching in and is in now. Herod uses his great power to abuse and kill. He uses his power on vanity projects and parties and things like that. Jesus uses his power to provide and heal. Herod is cruel and wicked. Jesus is compassionate and loving. Think about Herod for a sec. In just this this short story about Herod, we learn a lot about him. He arrests John because John calls out his sin. He's vain, throwing parties for himself with all the high officials and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. He surrounds himself by important people because he wants to feel important. But he's a weak ruler, isn't he? He's easily manipulated by his stepdaughter and his wife. He makes a foolish promise in front of others and because he wants to save face, he does what he knows is wrong. Verse 26 says, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not refuse her. Because everyone's looking to Herod and and wondering, will Herod keep his promise? So ultimately, Herod is an unjust and cruel leader who kills innocent John the Baptist. Jesus, on the other hand, is the opposite. And we see that as he feeds the 5,000. So imagine this. Uh, What we see in verse 30 and verse 31 is something like this. You've been away on a work trip and it's been weeks and weeks going into months now. In your work trip, you're going from place to place. You never know where you're going next. You never know how long you're going to be there. But you just keep going and going and going, working long hours. Finally, after weeks and months you arrive home, you are exhausted from all the travelling, all the long hours. You're looking forward to some quiet, peaceful work back in your office. But while you're working away in your office, you keep getting interrupted. You keep getting meeting requests. You keep getting phone calls from clients. You keep getting people dropping into your office wanting to talk to you. And you're sick of it, right? You're so tired from being away. You just want to... And so you decide to take a few days off, have an extra long weekend... You go away up north, up the beach. But while you're away, your phone keeps going off. The emails keep flooding in. In fact, people from your work, they've tracked you down and they've come to the beach to talk to you because they want you to get work done. That's a bit like what Jesus and his disciples are experiencing here. Look look at verse 31. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Come on, come on, guys, let's go away for the weekend and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Imagine that. You're trying to get away for some quiet time because the crowds, they won't even let you eat. And you're trying to get away 
and they run and beat you to the place you're going just to see you. Imagine you're Jesus in that situation. How would you feel? What do you want to do? Yell at the crowds? Go home, go away, leave us to rest. Hop in the boat and see if you can beat them to the other side. You know, uh, Jesus at different times just kind of disappears from the crowd. Maybe Jesus is thinking, maybe I can just work my miracle magic and just, I'm out of here. I think we feel like Jesus would be justified doing any of those things. But Jesus doesn't do any of them. Look at verse 34. When Jesus had landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus sees this crowd and instead of running because he's exhausted and hungry, he has compassion on them. The word for compassion there, it, it talks about a churning of the guts, right? He's so deeply moved within him, his guts churned for the crowd. That's the level of compassion he has. It's not like, it's not just pity. It's not just looking at their pathetic state going, oh, I suppose I should, no. He loves them so deeply that his guts are moved for them. They are sheep without a shepherd. They are people without the leader that they need. And so instead of rejecting the crowd and sending them away, he becomes their shepherd. He teaches them. He feeds them. He accepts them because he loves them. They were God's people without the ruler that they needed or deserved. And here is Jesus lovingly accepting them. You see, Jesus is the ruler who, who deeply cares for his people, who loves them to the core of his being. And this is the same Jesus who loves us and accepts us. He sees us, sheep without a shepherd, and becomes our shepherd. Jesus heals the crowd. And he heals our souls. Jesus provides food for them, an overabundance of food. And he provides an overabundance of life and salvation for us. Jesus is compassionate on the crowd and accepts them. He's compassionate on us and accepts us by dying for us, forgiving us, inviting us into his kingdom. How can we face rejection throughout the entire course of our Christian life? By knowing that we're accepted by Jesus. By knowing that he will not reject us, he will not turn us away, but he will lovingly shepherd us and provide for us and feed us. And so, even though we are rejected by people, we know we're accepted by Jesus. And knowing that Jesus accepts us more than makes up for any rejection we might face in this life. As we go around spreading the gospel, as we go around asking the big question, as we go around inviting people to church in a few months when we're preaching on those questions, we, we can expect there'll be rejection, but we will be secure knowing that Jesus loves and accepts us. We don't need a fear rejection, which leads to cynical complacency. We know Jesus loves us. He's deeply moved in his guts for us. 
And so we are freed by Jesus' love, right? We're freed from the fear of rejection. We're freed from the fear of what other people think of us. Because Jesus loves us so much more, we are free to go hard for the gospel. We are free to make big sacrifices. We are free to put ourselves in a place where we will get intense rejection. This might mean building relationships with people who we normally wouldn't, right? It's so easy for us to live in a little comfortable bubble. You know, I've got my church friends, I've got my work friends, Actually, a lot of them already go to church. Got my neighbours, uh, and we're pretty close, but, you know, two doors down, I don't know them. Uh, and we live in this really comfortable bubble. The people who we mostly hang out with, church friends, because they get us, they know us, they like us. But if we so feel and know the warmth and love of Jesus' acceptance, we are free to have relationships we wouldn't normally have associate with people we normally wouldn't, become vulnerable with people we normally wouldn't become vulnerable with. You know, how can we share the gospel with people when we have no relationship with them? There there are some few times when you can talk to people you have no relationship with about Jesus. But usually as we share Jesus, we do it in the context of relationship with them, of, of deeply loving and caring for their eternal well-being and good of knowing them and what they're like, knowing what they're going through in life, their ups and downs. Having relationship means we can share the gospel so much more effectively with them. But it also makes rejection far more painful. But knowing the love and acceptance of Jesus means that we are willing to do that, to face that painful rejection to go out and build relationships with people we normally wouldn't. And so what, what might that mean for you? Maybe it means going out for dinner with that co-worker, going to the pub with your neighbour, going to the movies, um, whatever it might be. Be willing to risk rejection in your relationships because you know the acceptance of Jesus. Be willing to risk rejection by talking to them about Jesus, by asking them the big question, by inviting them to church after Easter or over Easter by inviting them to church events. And as you do that, fix your eyes on Jesus, our Saviour who suffered and died, so we follow Him in that, but our Saviour who loves us deeply. It is totally worth it. Any sacrifice you make in this life for the Kingdom, for Jesus, any rejection you face, you will arrive on the last day in Heaven and you will not look back and say, I regret asking that person to come to church. 100% guarantee. You will not regret it. What you might regret is not asking, is not inviting, is not putting yourself in a position to be vulnerable with them. Let me finish one more time with the love of Jesus. When we are secure in that love, when we're thoroughly, deeply convinced that Jesus is for us and has our back, and accepts us no matter what, it fills us up. It fills us up so that we are overflowing. Now, overflowing love, we can't help but love others. We can't help but love our neighbour. Not only does Jesus' acceptance of us make up for the rejection we face, but it motivates us to go out into the world and love 
So let me finish with these words from John chapter 1. These are given as evidence of God's incredible love for us. John chapter 1 verse 9. Sorry, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your son who loves us and accepts us. That if we trust in him and his atoning death for us, we will never be turned away from Jesus but that we have a place secured for us in eternity. Father, help us to not just know that love, but to experience, comprehend, feel that love in our lives so that we might be willing to face whatever rejection comes our way as we speak the truth of the gospel and call people to repentance. Father, would you bless our efforts in this so that we might see great kingdom fruit But even if we don't, help us to never stop loving others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.